0: Well, good evening to you all. Good evening to you all. Thank you. you guys should know me by now that I have to have a response or I'm very, very insecure. <clears throat> Welcome to worship at City Reform this evening. <clears throat> and um, my name is Jim Partridge, and we are coming near to the end of our series in 1 Corinthians. Um... Just as a reminder, you will be hearing a little bit about this next week. Um, We will not be meeting here next week because the Lord provided a venue for our Thanksgiving dinner, so we will not have an evening service next week. Um, So we will finish 1 Corinthians um, perhaps the week after that, and then I believe the plan is to do a, a short Advent series. So that's the plan going forward from here. Well, uh, unless you had your head in the sand, you should know that there was a major election this past week, and if you weren't aware, just check out those machines in the back that I want to call voting machines, but they're not voting machines. They're scanning machines, because we've gone from sophisticated voting machines to now, like when I was in school, where you just fill in the dot. I was kind of surprised they didn't make us use a number two pencil, but... uh, Our building here serves as a polling place. Um, The whole issue of fair and free elections and the integrity of our democracy was a big issue of discussion leading up to last Tuesday. Huge concerns about the future of the country were being raised but there were competing concerns weren't there about the the here and now issues like inflation and crime. Those were in play as well. And then there was the whole issue of election deniers. And I won't go any further than that. But you'll understand why I'm bringing that up. Folks, we're not here tonight to talk politics. Uh, our pastor did a wonderful job, I thought, of preaching from First Peter this morning. Uh, it's about the most political I've er- ever heard Matt Kerber, but it was right out of the text. So, it was perfectly appropriate. But similar issues of what is true and real, how we think or don't think about the future versus our very present concerns and burdens, they're found in our text in 1 Corinthians 15 that we'll consider this evening and read in a moment. As well as a question we must all face in the light of this text. Are we Resurrection deniers. John just kind of alluded to that a little bit. Do we live fully in the light of the reality of the future bodily resurrection that's promised in the word that we're going to read with all of its implications? Or are we more concerned, more focused on the here and now, the brokenness that we see in ourselves and our world, and the looming threat of death. My heart, as I prepared for this sermon, truth be told, as early as this morning, was answering these questions that I'm posing from a posture of fear, uncertainty, and unbelief. And yet, as Pastor John shared at the end of his sermon on the first half of 1 Corinthians 15 last week, He shared a word from an old Scottish pastor. Our problems are nothing that a good resurrection cannot take care of. Amen? There's a lot of truth there. Dear friends, the Apostle Paul, as guided by the Holy Spirit, wrote the words of 1 Corinthians 15 to provide strong gospel hope to God's people in the midst of a broken world, as well as contribute to the biblical picture of what some call the consummation of all things. 1 Corinthians 15 is a massive theological statement for which I would like to draw one simple conclusion, powerful application, that the the apostle himself provides at the end of the text. It's my main point to you this evening, and it's this. Your labor is not in vain. You can abound in your work with steadfast and immovable faith, because of resurrection hope. So let me read our text, and then we'll affirm it together as the word of the Lord, and then I will pray. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. And earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, or I declare to you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? (coughs) Excuse me. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, this massive word, this amazing word, we are humbled to think of a God, as we read earlier, a personal God who will wipe away the tears of his people, who will one day swallow up death in victory. We thank you as we consider that great day this evening in this word, Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you would lift us up, lift us up out of all the concerns and burdens that we might have. Lift us out of fear, out of insecurity, out of feeling so inadequate. Give us great, great confidence in Christ that we have a great future hope. And would you move us to share that hope with the dying world around us? Father, I pray that you would forgive my many sins as I preach this word. I pray that you would use this word for your purpose. Father, would you uh, cause your spirit to be mighty among us as we consider this your word? Hear us as we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's work through this text. Follow along with me to see how Paul comes to his conclusion in verse 58, which I said before, my word to you, your labor is not in vain. You can abound in your work with steadfast and movable faith because of resurrection hope. How does Paul get there? Well, first of all, we need to realize that the Greco-Roman world of the first century, like ours, that world, in that world, a bodily resurrection was not seen as a serious explanation for life after death, if there was even any conception of what that might be. My ESV study Bible has a note that says, this is a quote, many people in the ancient Greco-Roman world believed that death extinguished life completely, like annihilation or led to a shadowy, insubstantial existence in the underworld. The concept of a physical, embodied existence after death was known mainly from popular fables and was thought laughable to the educated. That sounds pretty contemporary to me, doesn't it? If this background is true, the very first part of our text, look at verse 35 and 36, it helps us understand the questions in Paul's response. The two questions in verse 35, you know, at first reading seem pretty honest and straightforward, don't they? And yet Paul answers pretty strongly, you foolish person, or literally, fool. Leading us to conclude that these were not honest questions. These instead were the taunts of resurrection deniers who were seeking to undermine the credibility of what Paul was teaching. Now, these questions lead to his arguments in verses 37 through 41, where he says, essentially, that resurrection deniers fail to see the power of God in creation right before their eyes. He gives two analogies from the natural world to make the point. Look in verse 37 and 38. Paul goes horticultural on us to show the miracle of a bare seed planted in dirt that results in a short time in a fully grown plant. It reminds me of a basic and beautiful vacation Bible school activity where kids are given a styrofoam cup with some dirt in it, potting soil, and they're given seeds on day one, and by day three or four, a little sprout appears. It's a simple demonstration of God's power in creation, right? And then secondly, Paul uses the variety and the immensity of God's creation, verses 38 to 41, again to argue that resurrection deniers fail to see the power of God. If our God can make a mighty oak from an acorn, if he can make eaters and blowfish and aardvarks, and create vast galaxies of stars, can't he raise the dead? O we of little faith. On to verses 42 to 49, his argument here is basically, what is now is not what is to be in the future. Resurrection, if nothing else, is transformation, friends. Paul makes a total of six contrasts in these verses to hammer home his point. If you look at verse 44, I just want to make one note. He talks there about a spiritual body twice. Don't look at that and think immaterial body. He's not talking about an immaterial body, but a supernatural one. One that is adapted for heaven. This was the body that Jesus himself had when he appeared to the disciples in the days between his resurrection and his ascension. He was in his spiritual body. This is really a fascinating reference and one that one commentator said would have been shocking to the Corinthians because they were not very fond of the idea of the body. And they did not, many of them did not believe that a physical body could be resurrected. It just was, um, they gave it no thought at all. If you have questions about Paul's arguments in these verses, feel free to bring them afterward to grill the preacher. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, or better yet, ask Pastor John, he's our resident expert on the book of Corinthians. So I want to move on at this point to spend the rest of our time considering Paul's really forceful concluding assertion about the reality of bodily resurrection and its implication in verses 50 through 58. He sets it apart with a declaration in verse 50. I actually, uh, when I read the text, uh, that's better read, I declare to you, brothers and sisters. Paul is now honing in and emphasizing. And then he, in verse 51, makes this exclamation, behold. Look, listen, listen up. In a nutshell, Paul's message is this. There is a fixed and distinct future day in time and space when the Lord Jesus Christ will return with his angels with a cry of command and a sound of a trumpet and mighty power to raise the dead and the living. The details of this day can be found in a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 15. And I put this, you should all have a little insert. I put a couple verses in there. One of them is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. It's really kind of a parallel passage uh, to this part of 1 Corinthians 15. And what's going to happen on this day is also summarized really helpfully, I found, by a chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger catechism, question 87. I put those also in your uh, handout there. I found these statements to really provide clarity in clearly laying out the Bible's teaching on the subject. I'd like to read just the question 87 from the larger catechism. What are we to believe concerning the resurrection? We are to believe that in the last day, there shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. When they that are then found alive shall in a moment be changed, and the selfsame bodies of the dead, which are laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up by the power of Christ. The bodies of the just by the Spirit of Christ, and by virtue of his resurrection as their head, shall be raised in power, spiritual and incorruptible, and made like to his glorious body. And the bodies of the wicked shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. This amazing day, amazing day, friends, is the second coming of Christ. It's the day of the Lord, and it ushers in the final judgment and the restoration of all things, which our text actually speaks of when it quotes Isaiah 25, death swallowed up in victory. We read that in our call to worship. Our sin problem will fully and finally be done away with such that we will be literally incapable of sin. What a day we have to look forward to. Friends, may I remind you and myself that this day is coming. We will all be changed, like it or not. This resurrection is for all mankind, not just believers. My unbelieving family, Friends and neighbors will be resurrected as well as me, myself, and I, my dear wife, and all of you in the audience. We will be resurrected. There's no opting out of this great day. It will be a sober day when the Lord is glorified in both his judgment, his righteous judgment, and his salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ himself will preside over that day according to his own testimony. John chapter 5, and this is in your handout as well. This is the word of Jesus. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. How will you, how will I respond to the teaching of 1 Corinthians 15? This massive word from Paul about the reality, the fact of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, that was the first half of chapter 15, and then the correspondingly bodily resurrection of mankind, that his power, Jesus' power as the Son of God and the Son of Man will bring about. How will we respond? Well... Every preacher loves it when the biblical writer embeds an application in their text. And Paul has given us one in the last verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As I just reflected briefly upon that general application... Just a couple thoughts. This teaching should really stabilize us in the ups and downs of life. I realize that's easy for me to say. I'm not changing diapers these days. I haven't lost a job. I haven't endured great personal suffering. But this passage and this hope can still provide that stability. It can provide ballast when we're rocked by trial and temptation and suffering. This teaching also gives meaning and dignity to all that we're called to do in this life, whether our day jobs, our labor as parents, as friends, as neighbors. I really think that's all subsumed under the phrase, the work of the Lord. We should not just look at this as a narrow view of ministry or church work, evangelism and the like. It is those things. Those things are very important. But the hope of this great day of resurrection, friends, I believe is for all of life. From the valley of the diapers to the valley of death. It's all inclusive. Your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's pray.